You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, you can make your way to 1 Kings chapter 17. It's about a quarter of the way in or so to the Bible. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under the seats, page 299 uh, is where you can find today's text. Uh, but this morning, as Michael mentioned a while ago, uh, we're beginning a brand new series from First and Second Kings called Faith Among the Faithless. First uh, and Second Kings cover a period of about 400 years, so a lot of history put into these two books, uh, from the reign of Solomon, son of David, all the way through uh, the exile of the Israelite people to Babylon. But these books actually spend a disproportionate amount of time focused on this 80-year window, kind of in the middle, where two faithful prophets served and ministered among the faithless in the northern kingdom of Israel. Their names, as many of you might already know, are Elijah and Elisha. And their lives and their ministries are filled with incredible supernatural acts of God. Miraculous provision, like we're going to see today, a showdown with 450 prophets of Baal. We'll get there next week. Horses and chariots of fire. I already had one person recommend to me that I enter like slow motion running like the movie Chariots of Fire on the day we get there. So we'll consider it. And also, uh, for any kids who would dare to mock male pattern baldness, really high stakes consequences. <laughs> it's a great, very obscure story about Elijah's life and ministry where bears come out and maul kids who are mocking him and his baldness. So We'll do our best with that one when we get there. It's a few weeks out. We're going to cover uh, as much as we possibly can in this series over the coming months. But two big goals that I want to share with you this morning that's really shaped this whole series, from me, from the elders, two big goals. First, uh, we need to see that faithlessness is not a new phenomenon. Faithlessness is not a new phenomenon. It's tragic, but people reject God. Nations and its leaders and its people suppress the knowledge of God. And often it's, it's people who should know better. It's people who have experienced the kindness and the mercy of God. It's people who have a heritage of faith. But we have to stop being surprised by faithlessness. We have to stop thinking, specifically, that in our lifetime, it's the worst things have ever been. There have always been, there has always been faithlessness in the world. And second, we need to then see that the proper response to faithlessness is faith. It's faith. To believe that God is still on his throne when circumstances are bad. To believe that that nothing in this world takes place outside of of God's control. And moreover, moreover, we're called to have the kind of faith which believes that our God is the God of the impossible. The one who can do what no human power can accomplish. So I don't know where you are, where you find yourself this morning, but in recent months, I have found myself longing to see more demonstrations of God's power. Not just to read more or consume more Christian content, but to actually see people who have outright rejected Jesus come to faith and follow him. To see people who have shipwrecked their lives in a variety of ways, experience real healing and real redemption. To see marriages, for example, that have no hope right now supernaturally have hope and reconcile to one another. To see people actually set free by the power of the Holy Spirit from their their addictions. 
There are so many qualifications that you might want to hear me say right now. God doesn't always do what we want. Often he asks us to wait or he says no. And I agree with the qualifications. But here's the thing. I find myself at times, and I'm there right now, so tired of buffering myself with qualifications. There, there's times in life where I just want to take the pads, the padding of all the qualifications off and actually live a life of raw faith before God, that he's actually the kind of God that does the things that we read him do in scripture. So I'd ask you to consider that this morning. Is God or is he not God of the impossible? And do you find in your own heart today that kind of faith? Or maybe like I'm inclined to do, have you qualified away the faith that we actually see described in, in scripture? At the most fundamental level, Christians are people of faith. Uh, We are people who have assurance about the things we hope for, uh, who have deep conviction about the things that we do not yet see. And so the right response to faithlessness, whenever we encounter it, is not retreat or cynicism or fear, but like Elijah and Elisha, the right response is faith. And so we've been praying and continue to pray that this series will stir you up to be people of deep faith that, that God does the impossible. So with that, let's, let's dive in. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, depart from there and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Verse eight, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as I have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring you have come to bring to you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. 
And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. Living God, we ask that you would help us to hear your holy word with open hearts, that we may truly understand, and understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faith and in all faithfulness, seeking your glory in all we do. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. This, uh, this opening of the account of Elijah's ministry involves three types of famine. Three types of famine. We're going to look at each this morning. There's spiritual famine, there's physical famine, and there's a famine of hope. Spiritual famine, physical famine, and a famine of hope. So first, spiritual famine. Elijah enters the scene at one of the all-time lows for the people of God. So a quick kind of history catch-up here. After King David and King Solomon, the kingdom divides. And two of the tribes in the south form the southern kingdom called Judah. The other ten tribes form the northern kingdom called Israel. Over the next 350 years or so, Judah in the south has its own issues. There's some good kings, there's some bad kings. But in Israel in the north, it's all bad. It's all bad. Just to give you an idea, the first king of Israel, a man named Jeroboam, he kicks things off by setting up two golden calves for the people to worship. So Jerusalem, where the temple is, that's in the south, that's in the kingdom of Judah. In the north, they want another spot to worship. So Jeroboam establishes one and puts two golden calves there. Now, if you know anything about the history of the people of God, you don't do that. That's not something you do. You don't set up a golden calf and worship it. And from there, it just gets worse. Not a single faithful king in in Israel's line. In its first 60 years, Israel goes through seven different kings in rapid succession. One author summarized that period of time this way. He said, bloodshed and assassinations, murder and malice, intrigue and immorality, conspiracy and deception, hatred and idolatry had prevailed for six uninterrupted dark decades in Israel. And then it gets even worse. It gets even worse. A man named Ahab becomes king. And he not only continues the worship of the golden calves, but married to a woman named Jezebel, he begins to worship her god, a false god named Baal. And relatively quickly, Baal worship becomes the norm for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the author of 1 Kings, in some verses that were just before the ones we read today, the very end of chapter 16, the author of 1 Kings says this, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. They were bad, he was worse. And kings over the people of God, they are supposed to honor the Lord, not provoke him to anger. They're supposed to be representatives of his good and benevolent reign, not to undermine it and turn people away from him. And so really, this is a state of spiritual famine 
in Israel. And it's here, in this moment, that we meet this man named Elijah. Elijah's name means, my God is Jehovah, or the Lord is my God. And as we read there in verse 1, he is a Tishbite from Gilead. In other words, he's nobody from nowhere special. No one knows to this day exactly where Tishbe was. Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River. It was in land that was actually not originally part of the land promised to God's people. It ended up getting included in it, but it wasn't originally part of it. So in many ways, it's an obscure place. It's a peripheral place. Commentators, scholars, archaeologists describe it as a rough place, not a sophisticated place. So I kind of imagine it to be a little bit like how most people from the Harrisburg area think about Perry County. A rough place that's not sophisticated. You guys don't like that, huh? You guys, there's too many Perry County folks in the room. They're, they're getting mad right now. Okay, we'll move on. We'll move on. Elijah, though, it's not just a peripheral place. Elijah is, in many ways, a peripheral man. He has no fame. He has no credentials. He has no pedigree. One scholar actually describes him as a country bumpkin. It's in a commentary about Elijah, a country bumpkin. And, and we're going to see, actually, as the weeks unfold, there are more than a few parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist. A lot of parallels. That's not on accident. And we'll see more about why in weeks to come. Here's the thing. Heroes of faith emerge in times of spiritual famine. Among faithlessness, when faithlessness is pervasive, genuine faith shines all the brighter. And as the Apostle Paul will write centuries later, God loves to turn things upside down. He loves to take foolish things in the world and shame the wise. He loves to take weak things in the world and shame the strong. He loves to take what is low and despised in the eyes of the world and bring to nothing things that we deem significant and important. And so here in 1 Kings 17, the country bumpkin Elijah walks right up to the head of state, the most powerful man in Israel, and he throws down the gauntlet. It's either the Lord, it's either Yahweh, or it's Baal. Can't be both. Now, the big showdown will happen in chapter 18, and we'll get there next week. But it's actually three or so years before that that Elijah picks the fight, starts the confrontation. Baal, according to the myths of the ancient Near East, Baal is supposedly the god of rain and fertility. He's the god of life. And so when the rain stops, not just for a season, but for years... It's going to expose the impotence, the nothingness of Baal as a false god. The lack of rain is going to lead to some widespread physical famine. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But notice first here, as soon as Elijah confronts Ahab, as soon as he's done confronting him, God sends him away into hiding. He delivers his message, and then he's gone. The scariest form of famine is not physical. The scariest form of famine is spiritual. It's the kind of famine where God makes his word scarce, where it's hard to find the faithful word of God. In the book book of Amos chapter 8, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And so it's already a, a place of spiritual famine before this moment, but in 1 Kings 17, God doubles down and sends spiritual famine. He makes his word scarce. We meet Elijah, and then for three years, he's gone. And with him, any sense of of the presence and power of the word of God in, in Israel. 
so this opening, this opening of the Elijah narrative actually becomes a call to each and every one of us. And the call is this, it's to seek the Lord while he may be found. It is to call upon him while he is near, to borrow the words of the prophet Isaiah. We can never, in other words, presume that God will sit around and wait for us forever. That he'll always be ready and willing to be found when we want to find him, according to our timing. So I would say to you this morning, if the things of God are on the back burner of your life, and maybe for you that means you've been dancing around Christianity for years, but you keep putting off a real serious kind of exploration, a, really, a real exploring of that. And you're not just sitting on the fence, you've kind of built a house on the fence. Or maybe for you, you would be what I would describe as a nominal Christian. You check all the right boxes, believe all the right things, but God is not actually functionally at the center of your life, directing your day-to-day, directing your thoughts and your actions. Or maybe this is your story. Maybe you grew up in the church, but you aren't pursuing faith right now. You're thinking, maybe even perhaps, you know, someday I'm going to come back to that. There's some stuff I really value. I'm going to come back to faith, but right now there's just some things I want to do on my own. I don't really want to follow Jesus in my life right now. Let the opening of Elijah's story confront your presumption in that this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't presume that God works according to your timing and works according to your schedule. I would plead with you this morning, don't be that arrogant. Don't be that arrogant. Call upon him while he is near. Call upon him before a time of spiritual famine, before a time comes when he would make his word scarce. If that's spiritual famine, then second, second, let's talk about physical famine. The rain and the dew cease, we come to find out, for more than three years. And so the fields harden up, the crops don't grow. Widespread famine engulfs not only the kingdom of Israel, but the surrounding area as well. But it's in the midst of this physical famine that we start to see God's miraculous provision. And we see it first for Elijah, and then we see it for a widow and her son. So as we read, God sends Elijah to this place called Kareth Brook. It's a desolate place with no natural food sources. But there, like his ancestors many years before, God provides Elijah with his daily food. This also becomes a time of of real preparation for Elijah. Uh, We don't know how long he's there at Kareth Brook. Verse 7 just says, a while. But put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He, He musters up this courage of which it would take a lot to have this confrontation with Ahab. He goes face-to-face with the king, lays down this prophetic challenge, throws down the gauntlet, and then God tells him, now go sit by yourself for three years. The birds will be your friends, otherwise you'll be alone. And wait. I hate waiting. I don't know about you guys, I hate waiting, and I knew that I was off to setting a bad example for my own family, my own kids, when several years back, my oldest daughter and I were, were driving to uh, a Harrisburg Senators game on City Island. And so we got onto Market Street, on the Market Street Bridge, uh, and we slowed down pretty quickly in, in the line of cars that was preparing to exit into the parking lot to go watch the Senators game. For whatever reason on this day, I was in an uncharacteristically content mood. I wasn't impatient, I was just happy, I was like having a good day, I was going to enjoy the time and wasn't in a rush. So I'm sitting there patiently, and about 20 seconds later, I hear this cute three-year-old voice from the back seat say, Ugh, come on, cars! And immediately went, she didn't come up with that on her own. That, 
That might have something to do with me and the way I normally am in the car. I hate waiting. As much as we hate waiting, it's actually often where God meets us. Busyness easily distracts us from the most important things in our lives. We actually sometimes refer to this as tyranny of the urgent. And that's because urgent activity is a tyrant. It's a tyrant. It consumes, it demands everything. It consumes our lives. And so it's often when we're forced to slow down and wait, when we're not able to distract ourselves with busyness, that God does his deep and powerful work in us. And so God bringing this physical famine on the land, he's setting a stage for this big moment of confrontation, but that's not for three more years. In the meantime, Elijah has to wait. And not only that, he's forced to depend upon God in immensely tangible ways. If God does not send the ravens every single day, he's not going to eat. But it's here, I believe, that Elijah cultivates a life of deep faith. Faith that he is going to draw upon, faith he's going to desperately need for the rest of his life in ministry. But as he is put here in a position to daily receive from God, it's this condition of famine that is forming him into a man of faith. Famine forms him into a man of faith. And then after this time of waiting, God then sends him to be an instrument of of his provision, Uh, this time for a widow and her son. As it says there in verse 9, Zarephath is in Sidon. And we get this if we kind of zoom out and read through other parts of 1 Kings, but Sidon is actually where Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is from. Uh, The one who made, in other words, Baal worship prevalent in Israel. And so by sending Elijah to Zarephath, God is using physical famine to display two things, his boundless power and his boundless love. So first, we see here his boundless power. Zarephath is, as one scholar put it, Baalsville. It's Baal's own backyard. It's his turf. But Yahweh is never just the God of Israel. He's Lord of the nations. He's never just a tribal or territorial deity. He has authority everywhere in heaven and on earth. And so the effects of no rain have been felt in Baalsville too, not just in Israel. And Baal's impotence is now on display in his own hometown. But it's here that we also get to see God's boundless love, not just his power, but his love. His love is not just for Israel, it is for the world. It is for the nations. Centuries later, Jesus Christ will refer back to this very moment, and he will say, you know, There were a lot of widows in Israel when this happened too. It wasn't for lack of widows. It wasn't for lack of need. Vulnerable women and vulnerable children that needed provision. There were a lot of those in Israel. But God sent Elijah outside of Israel to another nation. This famine left a lot of people in Israel needy. But God's love is for the world. That's supposed to actually happen through Israel. They're supposed to be the conduit of God's blessing to the nations. But what we get to see here in 1 Kings 17 is that when Israel fails, when the people of God fail, when they are faithless, God remains faithful. And he is in this moment sending his prophet and his provision to the nations directly when they refuse to do it, when Israel refuses to do it themselves. Now maybe this part jumped out at you as we we read through. Elijah's request of this widow is jarring. Hey, I know you're making your last meal and you're about to die. Make me a cake first. It's not good optics. It doesn't sound good. What's going on with that? What parent of a starving child would go for that? 
But this is actually a moment that tests the genuineness of this woman's faith. It's hard to imagine a more, a more tangible test than this. Is God really going to provide? And as, as God's prophet representing God, feeding Elijah first is akin to putting God first. It's akin to seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that all other things, including something as significant as the food that, that she and her son need to survive, are going to be added to you. So famine is fertile ground for deep faith. Famine is fertile ground for deep faith. And, and not, it's not just when heroes of faith emerge. It's not just when Elijah emerges. But everyday ordinary people become people of deep faith in times when they're actually forced to depend upon God's provision. Most of us, I would venture to bet, have never experienced famine like this widow and her son. But many of us have experienced times of real physical and tangible needs. Some of us have walked through job loss for long seasons, financial hardship, prolonged illness. And the temptation for all of us in those times is to put ourselves first. It's to rely on our own strength. It's to imagine that it's now up to us to to pull ourselves out of the situation that we're in. But these are actually times where genuine faith is cultivated. These are times against all of our instincts to seek first the kingdom of God. Not to circle the wagons and look inward, but to look up, to look outward, to, to lift our eyes to the hills and see that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And to see that in times of famine, God is at work doing something to display both his boundless power and his boundless love. So if that's spiritual famine and physical famine, then third, let's talk about a famine of hope. Famine of hope. Uh, No matter how incredible or miraculous any instance of life might be, faith is cultivated over a lifetime of instances, not just one. Faith is walking in an ongoing way, not by sight, but with this assurance, with this conviction of the things we hope for, of the things we don't yet see. And so at the end of this passage, we find that the lack of food coming that close to death from starving was not this woman's most difficult test of faith because sometime later her son becomes ill and dies. Now in this society in the ancient Near East, she was already, when we meet her, an incredibly vulnerable person. Without a husband, she has very limited options to provide for herself. She has limited rights. With her son's death, she now becomes that much more vulnerable. And so this is a hopeless situation for her. It's a famine of hope. And different from the physical famine, think about this, the physical famine affected everyone in the region, affected everyone around her. She knew other people that were starving when she was starving. Unlike that, Well, after then she saw and experienced the miraculous provision of God's power in the flour and oil never running out, she has a sense that God is real, that God is powerful, that God is present there. But now it feels like God is singling her out and picking on her. It's not just everybody experiencing physical famine, it's her her son who dies. And so she does what I imagine I would do, what I imagine most of us would do when we're hopeless and when we're angry with God we find somebody nearby to blame. We find a flesh and blood. It's so much easier to take our anger out on a flesh and blood human being we can see than on a God we cannot. And so she yells at Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? In other words, 
Why did you even come here? Was it just to remind me of my sin? I know I'm not perfect. Was it just to, to unleash this incredible consequence on me? Like, what, what are you doing? Why did you come here? And there is so much that Elijah could say in that moment. There is so much correction he could bring to her flawed perspective. There's so much rebuke he could give for her misdirected anger. What, is, what does Elijah do instead? He's silent. He's silent about those things. And he says simply, give me your son. Rather than reacting, rather than defending himself, in in an immensely literal way, he opens his arms, he picks up the burden of her sorrow, the burden of her anger, and he carries it before the face of God. In our world right now, there are a lot of people who are angry with God. There are a lot of people who are angry with God. Some have experienced terrible things, at the hands of of those who claim to be God's people. Some feel like, because of their own circumstances, that God is singling them out, picking on them. Whether they would acknowledge this or not, they're hopeless. They're hopeless, and they're angry at God, whether they say that or not. And if you're the only Christian they know, or one of the only Christians they know, and especially if you're any kind of Christian leader in the church or in a school or in some kind of Christian organization, you should expect that at some point that anger is going to get aimed directly at you. Like Elijah, our best response is often silence. It's not rebuking. It's not correcting. It's often silence. It's often weeping with those who weep. It's it's offering our arms to help carry the burden. Elijah was a prophet. But I hope you hear this this morning, men and women. You are a priest You are part of the priesthood of all believers through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when you have nothing else to offer, when you can't do a thing to fix someone's circumstances, you actually are still in a perfect position to open your arms and to carry the burden of someone's hopelessness, someone's anger at God to the face of God yourself and intercede for them. And so we read in verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. God heard his prayer. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. This widow's hopelessness becomes the first recorded instance of a resurrection in the Bible. As the author of Hebrews will go on to write many years later, by faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. The author of Hebrews is talking about this. Women, by faith, received back their dead by resurrection. But think about this. It was not her faith. It was the faith of another interceding for her in that moment. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed, and God listened to his prayer. And so I hope you hear this morning, you you can bring hope into a famine of hopelessness in someone's life by interceding for them in prayer. And so when people direct their anger at God, at you, instead, when they take their anger at God out on you, See that as a moment to close your mouth, to open your arms, to carry their burden before the face of God. See what God will do when you intercede for someone in that moment. In this resurrection, God is also again displaying his superiority to Baal. So according to that myth, as the God of rain and fertility, Baal would labor each year through the sowing and the harvest season, and then he would die. In other words, every year, Baal had to submit to death. But now, now in Baal's own backyard, by raising up this widow's son from the dead, 
Yahweh is saying, I am not a God who submits to death. Death submits to me. So you see, some generations later, there was another prophet coming. There was another man from an obscure place. There was another man who would confront the faithless leaders of God's people. There was a man who would also wait and be sent to the wilderness. This man, too, would ask God to miraculously multiply food so that there would be enough. This man, too, would climb the stairs to an upper room preparing to do battle with death. This man, too, would stretch himself out, not on another, but on the cross. And this man would not merely pray for a resurrection. He himself would rise from the grave. He would become the firstborn from among the dead, and his resurrection would set the stage for our own. Into the famine of our hopelessness, men and women, Jesus Christ came into this world and died and rose again so that all of us who would look to him in faith might live. This widow got to experience the hope of her son's resurrection. You and I get to experience the daily hope of the resurrection of the Son of God. So men and women, call upon this God while he may be found. Recognize the boundless power and the boundless love that God is displaying in the midst of famine and live with the daily hope of resurrection. Our God is truly the God of the impossible. He will not submit to death. Death will submit to him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we can say because of Jesus, the words that Elijah said to that widow so many years ago, See, your son lives. So we are gathered here this this morning because that is true. Because, Father, your son lives. You raised him up, and he will raise us up. And so we ask now for the grace to believe what we have heard. We ask for the grace to believe and to live as though you really are the God who does the impossible. Give us that kind of faith. Give us grace to live in ways that honor you above all. And we pray all this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.